Al Jazeera podcast. Hundreds of civilians killed and injured in Israeli attacks on Gaza. The government declares a total siege, fighting what it calls human animals. Earlier, hundreds of Israelis were killed by Palestinian fighters. Why has politics failed so badly? What's next for both sides? I'm Sami Zaydan. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring our guests into the show. We have joining us from Tunis, Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territory. In Haifa, Israel, is Diana Buto, a lawyer and former spokeswoman for the Palestine Liberation Organization. And in Tel Aviv, Gideon Levy, a columnist at the Israeli newspaper Haaretz and the author of The Punishment of Gaza. Well, a warm welcome to you all. If I could start with Diana. You know, Diana, how common, I was thinking, how rare is it in modern political discourse to hear a government minister openly vowing to starve a population of food, water, electricity and fuel? Well, actually, this isn't at all new for Israel. The, the, the siege that Israel is now tightening has actually been in place now for 17 years. And actually much, much, much longer than that if you if you look at the system of closure. The problem, of course, is that Israelis have gotten used to this to this process of dehumanizing Palestinians. We heard as much yesterday when he called Palestinians human animals. And the fact that he gets to do so with complete impunity. It's this that has led to the events of this past week, that somehow they believe that they can do whatever they want to Palestinians and that history only began on Saturday, discounting 56 years of military occupation, discounting 56 years of what they saw over the course of the past 48 hours being meted out against Palestinians for 56 years. So it's but, not but Dan, if I could jump in, something has changed though, right? This was a territory, obviously, Gaza has been under siege for 56 years, according to international law. It had, uh, sorry, under occupation for 56 years. It has been under siege for 16 years. But now what Israeli officials are talking about is total siege and restricting, Absolutely. not just restricting, stopping completely the flow of very basic vitals of life. Yes, absolutely. And so what they're now gearing up to, I want to put it in its context so that people understand this is not new, but they are intensifying it. And the whole point is that what they want to do is commit mass atrocities. And sadly, they're being given the green light by the United States and by other countries around the world. Let me move to Francesca and ask this question. The obvious one that comes to mind, Francesca, is how does this sit with international law? It doesn't. It, it's, it's completely outside what is permitted um, under international law. And this is, in fact, it sounds like a broken record, but this is the trajectory that I have been following in my observations and documentations on the, of the reality on the ground and my predecessors as well. I, let me add something on this blockade of the blockade, though. What it's leading to, it's starvation, which is a crime against humanity, under international law and it's um and it, it will be criminally 
it should it should be criminally prosecuted. Um, so uh, Francesca, let, let me jump in and, and present to you perhaps the Israeli perspective, or at least of those who support this far right government. Does witnessing crimes that took place in killing Israeli civilians at all uh, sit with? the right to, quote-unquote, as they put it, self-defence, that we are defending ourselves and we have a legal right to defend ourselves by imposing this complete siege, starving the population of food, water, electricity and fuel. Can that be justified under international self -determination, law? Self-determination, no. No, because self-determination... Sorry. <laughs> self-defence uh, of a state is not a basis for justifying actions that constitute crimes or other viol serious violations of international law, um, especially in, a co in the context of hostilities. So this is the reality. There are limits. And in, a in the cycle of every attack, the principles of distinction, precaution, and proportionality must be taken, not just during the entire operation. Uh, per each attack, Civilians cannot be targeted, and civilian infrastructure cannot be targeted, which is not what is what is happening, and it is not what has happened in the previous five wars that Israel has launched against Gaza since uh, 2008. Okay, let me bring Gideon into the discussion. And Gideon, obviously, I know that you do not subscribe to the far-right wing of Israeli politics, but from your understanding of the Israeli body politic that's in power right now. What do you think is the strategic thinking, the strategic goal of saying we're going to stop all food, water, electricity and fuel going into Gaza? To achieve what? Let me correct you. Uh, when it comes to Gaza, when it comes to the apartheid, when it comes to the occupied territories, to the occupation, the differences between the far right wing and the so-called central left are minor, if at all. So before we get into your question, let's not label it on the right-wing government because I guess a central left government would react right now in the position in this context that we are now, a, a central left government would have reacted exactly the same, including this total siege. This total siege is not what worries me because this total siege cannot last for long. The problem why is can't the it ongoing... last, Gideon? Why can't it last? Because in a certain stage, people will start starve in Gaza and Israel will not stand scenes of starvation. And the world then will say a word about uh, opening a humanitarian uh, corridor and uh, having some uh, humanitarian ceasefire. This is not the problem. The problem is 17 years of a not total uh, siege in which we all normalized it. The total siege will not be normalized. But the ongoing siege is totally normalized by Israel, by the international community, by everyone. And then everyone is so astonished and shocked when the Palestinians are taking very brutal, I would even say barbarian measures to put an end to it. Okay, I want to go back to Diana. Diana, when we put this statement by the Israeli Minister of Defense about cutting off all food, fuel, water to Gaza 
alongside in the context of what the Israeli Prime Minister has been talking about, about taking action that will change the Middle East, telling Palestinians to get out of Gaza. Do you start to have some concern about whether there is thinking, Israeli thinking here, about demographic change in Gaza is on the table? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And people are now calling for a second Nakba, a second mass expulsion of Palestinians, a second ethnic cleansing. And this is where we're gearing up. Look, it's it's not that far of a stretch when you hear the statements that have been ongoing, not just over the course of the past few days, but that have been ongoing now for decades by this prime minister and by other Israeli officials in which they say that it's time to get rid of Palestinians that they have to finish the job of 1948. When you hear that, you juxtapose it with the statements by Yoav Gallant, who just came out yesterday calling us human animals, and juxtapose it with the statement by Netanyahu saying that people should leave even though there's no place for them to go because they've closed off the Gaza Strip. What we're really gearing up to see is mass atrocities, the mass expulsion of Palestinians or the mass Diana, killing let, of let me jump in as well and put to you the Israeli narrative that that we, we hear from the Israeli military that they are making targeted strikes, they say, on Hamas quarters, uh, military installations in Gaza. This is not mass targeting of the civilian population. That's impossible. That's impossible. In, in, in Israeli speak now, uh, Hamas equals Gaza. And so that any strike on Gaza to them is a justification for targeting Hamas. And we know that that is not the case. F about 50% of the population of the Gaza Strip is under the age of 18. They've lived their entire lives only knowing the siege. They haven't had water. They haven't been secure. They've lived through five wars. And, and yet um, they have no future. And yet the world still continues to behave as though it's business as usual. And as Gideon said, the, the siege, the blockade has become totally normalized. The suffering of Palestinians has become totally normalized. The dehumanization of Palestinians has reached peak, peak levels such that we're not allowed to even respond back to what Israel has done to us for 56 years. All right, let me... Um bring Gideon back into this. Can the Israeli government change the Middle East, as Netanyahu was vowing, without launching a very serious ground offensive? Is that really, ultimately, what we're looking at? I'm sure that you are not asking this seriously because it's ridiculous, because Israel is using the same threats and the same methods that it used so many times and fail to reach anything so many times. I'm ready to put aside the moral question. I'm ready to put aside the legal question. But where does it lead to? I mean, you asked before about the strategic uh, a goal. The only strategic goal that Israelis can have in mind is getting rid of the Palestinians in one way or the other. But this is not a realistic do, do goal. You, and do, you think that's, do you think that's what... Some policymakers, at least in Israel, are really contemplating right now, at least in terms of Gaza, that they can really, if not get rid, but shift the Palestinian population somehow in Gaza, away from the border? Why would we guess if people, including ministers, say it clearly? When they say about total bombarding of Gaza, what will remain in Gaza after it will be totally bombard, bombarded? 
perhaps Francesca, for those who might not survive this, right? Listening to what the WHO said only a matter of hours ago about how all the medicine, the medical supplies that they have pre-positioned have already run out. What kind of humanitarian situation are we heading to and how quickly will it emerge if people don't have some of the basics like medicine, food, fuel, or even water, as the Israeli defense minister was vowing to cut off to Gaza? And definitely the, the risks are immense and therefore also the concern. We are not talking of a normal situation that all of a sudden is uh, um, cut off from the rest of the world. Gaza was already severely depleted and compromised before the 7th of October. And again, I, I share uh, Diana and Gideon's dismay at the, at the normalization of this situation and the, at the poor action, because the, the blockade in itself constitutes already um, a war crime, a form of collective punishment. And what is going to come to happen next? Without, uh, without essential supplies, food, medicines, uh, and water or electricity, people are going to die. And the wounded will not be uh, able, uh, uh, sorry, the, um, the hospitals will not be able to cure the, the wounded. And there will be diseases spreading. Already people from Gaza are fearing cholera, which will happen with all the all the destruction of civilian infrastructure and impossibility to cure the wounded. Diana, if we look closer at the politics of this, how have we reached this point in terms of complete failure of the political process and the political systems? Through a number of ways. The first is that there was a lot of emphasis on negotiations and somehow two-state solution, rather than focusing on the problem, which is military occupation and the denial of freedom and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That's one. But then beyond that, it's that there has never been in place a system of accountability um, regarding Israel's actions. Israel's never been held to account. My friend, your colleague, Shirin Abu Akleh, is just one example. She was assassinated on May the 11th of last year, and today nobody has been held to account for that. And there are thousands of Shirians that are out there where Israel has never been held to account. So in the mindset of Israelis, this just becomes a system in which they can do whatever it is that they want to do. And, and Let me jump in, Diana. It. You're so, right. A lot of international organizations have documented killings of what they consider to be extrajudicial killings of not only journalists and civil society workers, but other uh, Palestinians or members of the Palestinian population. And they say very clearly there's a lack of accountability. Let me present to you, though, the Israeli narrative. And they would say what has paralyzed the political process is what they call terrorism by these Palestinian groups, that they, they keep practicing targeting of civilians and attacks on civilians, as the likes of which we've just seen, sadly, a few days ago, and so many people lost their lives. You know, this is, again, trying to flip things on its head. This is not a two-way occupation. It's a one-way occupation. Israel's doing the occupying, and Palestinians are resisting and trying to obtain their freedom. 
And if they don't like the response, which is violence, then they have to get to the root of it, which is occupation. And occupation, there won't be violence. But that's the problem is that everybody keeps flipping it on its head, demanding that there be a peaceful occupation. And even then, Israel doesn't do anything. So I think rather than the world blaming the victims, being the Palestinians, they should be looking at themselves and asking themselves, how is it that we've left this system in place now for such a long period of time? How is it that in 2023, we're still talking about the denial of freedom? How is it that this system is still in place and is now apartheid? How is it that this continues to happen? And that's where the where the problem lies. We need to have adults who are going to come forward and hold Israel accountable. Without that, Israel continue to do whatever it wants and dehumanize Palestinians in the process and then be shocked when there is a response. Gideon, I know you said earlier that you don't see there's a lot of difference right now in the thinking between the far right and the, I think the center left was what you were talking about. But bear with me for a moment, Gideon. When you look back at the statements of people in the Israeli government, like the Minister of Finance, Bezalel Smotrich, his call in March for Palestinian villages like Hawara to be erased. Is there something of a history in the thinking, at least in that branch of Israeli body politics, about population change, erasing villages, erasing towns as a solution, as a policy option? So far, Israel is doing it slowly, slowly, very gradually. But in the last months, and even in former governments, people were uprooted from their lands, people were uprooted from their homes, from their properties. And the, the silent wish was that if we tyrannize their lives badly enough, they might decide one day to leave. This didn't happen. No doubt that the rhetoric of those fascists who would answer the definition of neo-Nazis, would they be Europeans, like Bezalel Smotrich and Benfer and those, no doubt that their rhetoric is really by far more extreme than the more civilized rhetoric of the central left. Maybe their plans are much more crazy. But by the end of the day, the real danger is from the so-called moderate ones, because they put the basic and they established, they established the, the occupation, they established the settlement project, and they're establishing now the apartheid system. And they do it softly or relatively softly, and therefore they are much more destructive because nobody gets against them. They do so-called normal uh, things, uh, you know, that the silent majority is supporting both in Israel and in the world, while the extremists at least create some kind of alarm. So we should concentrate on the mainstream of Israel. This is our problem. Francesca, if we, if Israeli statesmen who are making statements like total siege, total bombing, if that is carried out, might we see a situation in which pressure will mount maybe on Egypt to open up their border and we witness some kind of mass exodus of Palestinians from Gaza into Egypt? Well, this is what I understand is, uh, is I mean, is one of the possible scenarios. 
because um, this is what Israel, there have been statements uh, by Israeli officials in this sense and the response by Egypt uh, challenging this. This is not a possible scenario. Uh, but it, what it seems to me is that the measures taken, including the bombing of the Rafah crossing, hints to an intention to really starve and kill the people who are in, inside the, the Gaza Strip now. Um, of course, Palestinians fear um, that the, the threat of a second Nakba, which wouldn't be really a second, because there have been so many instances of displacement, including, we shouldn't forget that in 1967, 350,000 Palestinians were displaced. So it's been a, an ongoing forced displacement for them. But of course, they fear that under threat, they will be uh, forcibly displaced and never allowed to return, even to the to the little and to the, 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 the misery they have been confined to in Gaza. Gideon, I know we talked a moment ago about what is the strategic thinking. Can we talk at least a bit about what is the broader goal? Is the, the calculus or is the broader goal here to try and return to a situation where you can have an occupation, an extended occupation, with little cost to Israel's security, to its reputation, to get back to that kind of scenario? Is that what's being targeted? That's exactly what Israel would like. Israel would like to live in peace and security without any uh, connection to what it's being doing, both in Gaza in the West and in the West Bank. I mean, let us occupy, let us create an apartheid system, let us kill civilians, let us uproot them from their lands, and don't bother us, and don't resist and behave yourself. And there is even a promise, if you will behave yourself, we will offer you the economical peace. Namely, we will bribe you with some money, some aid, and everyone will be happy. The Palestinians said on Saturday, not the first time, but in the most brutal and barbarian way, the Palestinians said on Saturday, this is not enough and this cannot last forever. Diana, since we're talking about changing calculuses, has the calculus changed for internal Palestinian politics, especially the PA after the events, the recent events we're seeing? Oh, most, most definitely, yes. Look, it's been changing for a while because we've increasingly seen that the Palestinian Authority has lost all support, both in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. We are, of course, seeing that more and more people recognize the, that, that, there is, that there needs to be resistance to military occupation. And the Palestinian Authority has done absolutely nothing to protect Palestinians or to even offer an alternative. So yes, the, the calculation has completely changed now uh, within the mindset of Palestinians, so much so that Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, who was irrelevant before, has been made even more irrelevant now. Francesca, what other political options going forward, do you think, in this kind of very bleak scenario? Yeah, just one comment. Um, and again, without, I know that this is something that might, so might sound strong, but uh, while there is a right to resist an oppressive regime, and uh, the Palestinians have been under oppressive regime for decades now, um, it's also 
there is an imperative to remind ourselves that mass killing um, is not justified. So I would like to take the fact, I mean, Saturday as an example, not to follow. Um, for sure, for sure, and, Francesca. And, yeah, and, uh, and um, now in terms of what are the political options, I will tell you what I would recommend um, and because there is nothing that is really being put on the table uh, by the main policymakers other than uh, one-sided support and, um, and uh, violence and armed, armed responses. So I think that, first of all, it's, it's fundamental to negotiate a truce with the immediate cessation of hostilities, the release of the hostages, but also the other persons, the Palestinians but who Francesca, are... Francesca, one could argue we've gone through this yeah. so many times, haven't we, in conflicts? And they start yeah, all over again. this is just the first step. This is just the first step. The second is reinforcing humanitarian aid and then forming a UN task force to ensure, um, sorry, to monitor truth, but also to ensure a protective presence of the uh, of the Palestinians and others on the ground. Because, and, and again, this has always been put aside. The, 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 this is in the short term. In the longer term, I mean, in medium term, what is need to be the uh, devised is a plan to end the occupation but not in in years it is to be it needs to start to be discussed now and not envisaging the realization of palestinian self-determination and freedom uh, once the peace process is achieved because this is like kicking the can in the air frankly all right there's plenty more i'm sure that we could uh, discuss we'll have to leave it there for now let's thank our guests francesca albanese diana butto and gideon levy this episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Abdurrahman Celik, Fungi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Mark McDonald. The program was edited by Manish Matai, Zaina Bader, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we hear from a woman whose house was destroyed in Gaza as Israel ramps up its airstrikes. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.